I'm through the book of 1 Corinthians, as you all know quite well. And, and we say the book of 1 Corinthians, but really, technically, it's a letter. It's a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. Um, and uh, it was the first, well, let's see, was it the first letter? No, probably the second letter that he had actually written to them. And as you're going through the letter, he gets to this point where he starts responding to some things that the Corinthians had written to him about. And that's, we're, we're kind of in that section now in chapter 7. And uh, specifically, the issue that Paul's concerned about in Corinth is that the Corinthians have a certain view about sex, namely, that for a man to have sexual relationship with a woman is, uh, is a bad thing. A man shouldn't do that. Sex is, sex is a, a, an, an unspiritual thing. That's what the Corinthians believe. And Paul is trying to counter this because it's, it's tearing marriages apart. Relationships aren't healthy. Now the tricky thing is that Paul himself prefers singleness. And the Corinthians are saying, yeah, that's a good idea because sex is bad. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not why I prefer singleness. I've got different reasons for why I prefer it. He says that he prefers singleness pretty clearly in chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Let me just read these to you, just so we kind of have in our minds Paul's perspective here. Verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am, referring to the fact that he's not married. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So this this is Paul's preference, but it's not for moral reasons. We talked about this last week. The the Corinthians think that it's actually, at least from what we can tell, we're only we're only hearing one side of the phone call here as we read Paul's letter. We don't we're not hearing what the Corinthians have said explicitly, except for Paul brings it up every once in a while. The Corinthians seem to think that it's immoral. It'd be immoral if you were betrothed, if you had entered into some kind of contract saying we're going to get married, for you to go ahead and get married would be a, a sinful thing to do. Paul keeps coming back and saying, it's no sin, it's no sin. That's not the reason why I prefer singleness. It's not, it's not because being single is spiritually superior, it's not because it's morally superior. Paul says singleness provides a practical advantage. Which is why Paul offers it only as a suggestion, as an opinion, not as a restriction. And so he's trying to clarify for this, well, what are Paul's reasons then? What is the, what is the practical advantage of singleness? And Paul gives two reasons. We looked at one of them last week. The first reason was this. There is a present distress that's taking place. Specifically, Paul says that the present age is an age of distress because we have to live here and yet the present age here where we have to live is passing away. You have to live here. Paul, the New Testament, Jesus, none of them uh, promote an escapist mentality where we're all going to hide ourselves up in the woods and and pull away and create a Christian society. The New Testament doesn't, doesn't argue for that. 
What the New Testament says is things like this. Here's Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17. Jesus says to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus doesn't ask the Father to take us out of the world. Leave us in the world, but while we're there, protect us from the evil one. So you got to live here, but you can't get too comfortable here. As though things are going to last. And that's a distressing situation because it's tough to live here in this world and not get too comfortable with this world. That's a distressing situation. And because of that distress and the temptation to get cozy, Paul says it might be a good idea, practically speaking, to remain single. Because when you marry, it requires you to give extra attention to the things of this world. And when you have to give extra attention to the things of this world, it's easy to just get sucked in and live for this world. And Paul says... I want to preserve you from those worldly troubles, namely the temptation to make this world ultimate. Singleness is one practical way that might help you avoid that. So that's a, that's a practical reason for the preference of singleness. Now he's got a second reason, and the second reason um, depends upon how you interpret this first section that we're going to look at today. Chapter 7, verses 32 to 35. Now there are, there is, there is, there's an interpretation of this passage, I mentioned this last week, there's an interpretation of this passage that has dominated, traditionally, interpretation in church history. And so let me give you an overview of the traditional interpretation of this passage, and then I'll share with you why I don't think it works. So here's the, here's, here's the traditional interpretation, and uh, let's see. I'll give you the overview of their interpretation, then we'll read it, and you'll see why, yeah, that seems to make pretty good sense of this passage. Here's the overview. Paul says in verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. And what he means, according to the traditional view, is that I want you to be free from the distractions that marriage necessitates. The single person can focus on the things of God. Marriage requires you to be anxious about the things of the world. The necessary anxieties of marriage thereby divide your interest between God and your spouse. And therefore, the traditional interpretation would say, the second reason that Paul recommends singleness is because he wants the Corinthian singles to give undivided devotion to the Lord. And in this interpretation, that is not a possibility for the married person. That's the traditional view. So let's read through this, and you'll see why that does seem to make pretty good sense of this text. I want you to be free from anxieties. The anxieties that must come with marriage. That's the interpretation. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. That's a good thing. The interpretation would say. Verse 33. But the married man is anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Okay, you see that? There's the, the, the married person is, is, is 
concerned about worldly things, anxious about worldly things. The single person is just thinking about the things of the Lord. The married man, his interests are divided because of that. He's got to think about the Lord and he's got to think about his wife. Verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. I want you to be undivided and stay single. That's the, that's the traditional interpretation. Well, there, I, I suppose it's possible. I suppose it's possible. I have, I have four reasons why I think that doesn't smell right to me. And, and, and why I don't think it actually holds up in the passage. So my first reason is this. Up to this point, the entire argument in chapter 7 has been countering the belief that neither singleness nor married status is spiritually superior. So how can that hold true if only the single can give undivided devotion to God? Uh, That sounds to me, it's hard for me to hear that and not think, well, that sounds like a spiritually superior situation or a morally superior situation. How do you get around um, not making singleness a superior status if that's how you interpret this passage? So, So something just doesn't smell right to me there in the context of the flow of thought. Reason number two. If the traditional view says that only those who are single can have undivided devotion to the Lord, then does that not lay a restraint upon the single... The restraint being, look, if you really want to be undivided in your devotion to the Lord, you need to stay single. Does that not lay a restraint on the single, the very thing that Paul says he's not doing? And does it not produce anxiety for the single rather than alleviate it? Paul makes eight statements in chapter 7, at least eight, there could be more, in which he attempts to make it perfectly clear that he he wants to avoid playing putting any restriction on the singles or on the church body. Verse 25, he says, this is not a command, it's an opinion. Verse 28, he says, marriage is not a sin. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. Verse 35, he says, this is for your benefit. Verse uh, verse 35 again, he says, I don't want to lay a restraint on you. The word here is is a hunting term. It's a noose. I don't want to put a noose around you, like a, like a, a rabbit that would get its its paw caught in a snare. Paul says that's not what I'm doing with my teaching here. Verse 36. Again, marriage is not a sin. Verse 38. The one who marries does well. Not to mention, back in verse seven, he says that celibacy is a gift. So it just doesn't smell right to me that only. The single can give undivided devotion to God and that not be a restraint and anxiety producer. So again, it doesn't smell right. Reason number three. Marriage simply does not necessitate... I'm sorry. Marriage simply does not necessitate divided devotion to the Lord. A man's, for example, a husband's Christ-like leadership and love for his wife 
is a display of Christ, Paul says, Ephesians chapter 5. And like everything else, when, when, when it's done in an act of faith, it's worship unto the Lord. Even the service, Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 6, even the service of a slave can be rendered to his master unto the Lord. A slave can serve his master and it's worship unto God. How much more a husband's service of his wife? Um, likewise, a wife's respect and support for her husband is offered unto the Lord, Ephesians 5.22. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Does marriage really demand divided devotion to Jesus? I don't think so. So theologically, it's not lining up. So those are three reasons. But really the one that sells me on it is this fourth reason. And it has to do with the anxiety language in this paragraph. The anxiety language in this paragraph. Paul says in verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. And then he lists four anxieties. The traditional view says two of those anxieties are good anxieties, and two of those anxieties are bad anxieties. It's the same exact word that's used in all four cases. So let's go through this. Let me just read this to you again and show you how the traditional view takes this. I want you to be free from anxieties. So that's what Paul wants. Anxiety number one. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. And the traditional view says, that's a good thing. Really? Because he just said, I don't want it. So I have a problem with that. And then, verse 33, but the married man is anxious about worldly things. Now that's bad in the traditional view. Same word. Why does the meaning of the word change from this sentence to this sentence when the whole paragraph is lying under the theme of, I don't want you to be anxious? It doesn't make sense to me. Again, verse 34, his interests are divided. The unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. Traditional view says that's a good anxiety. And verse 30, what? End of verse 34. The married woman is anxious about worldly things. That's bad. Okay, so I just can't buy it. At, le- at, least, at least I should say um, somebody has to answer those questions. There are some commentators who ask these kinds of questions and they go, we gotta, we got to think about this because it just doesn't make sense. In light of the flow of thought, it doesn't make sense theologically. It doesn't make sense exegetically right here in the passage. So let me offer a modified view. Again, I'll give you an overview of what I think that this passage is saying, and then we'll walk through it. Here's a modified interpretation. Paul has just stated that he prefers singleness because of the distress of the perishing world. But regardless of whether a person is married or single... He wants everybody to be free from anxiety. The singles and the betrothed have an anxiety problem. And their anxiety is over how to please the Lord. Now, why would that be happening? Well, it could be, this is what I think is going on, that the ascetic mentality in the Corinthian church that says it's bad 
to marry, it's bad to have sex, stay single. I think it makes them anxious. Makes them feel like they have to, they're compelled. They're being forced. They're being coerced to stay single. I think it's producing anxiety in them. The, the unmarried and the betrothed woman, she's anxious about how to stay pure in her body and in her spirit. Why? Because if you get married, you're going you're gonna to choose a, a lesser route and you'll, you'll be sinning because you'll be in a sexual relationship. Anxiety for the singles. Anxieties for the married as well. Paul doesn't like either of them. Okay, so that's, that's the big picture of what's going on here. Paul wants both married singles to be free from anxiety so that both married and singles can be undistracted in their devotion to the Lord. So let's go through this, and I'll, I'll, I'll show you how I interpret this passage. I want you to be free from anxieties, married and single. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Why? Because he's being pressured to stay single. Verse 32, 33 rather. But the married man is anxious about the things of the world. Now, Paul doesn't want that from the married man. The traditional view gives the implication that if you're married, you must be anxious about the things of the world. It's necessarily entailed in being married. You must be anxious about the things of the Lord, and you must be divided. Paul says, the married man is anxious about worldly things under the banner of, I want you to be free from this. So I'll come back and talk about this one a little bit more in just a minute because I want to I want to unpack what's going on in the married man's life that makes him anxious. Verse 34, the unmarried betrothed woman, she's anxious about the things of the Lord, how to keep her body pure, how to keep her spirit pure. Why? Because if you get married, you're going to be in trouble. And then verse 34 at the end, the married woman, she's anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And she's in the same boat as her husband is. Anxious about worldly things. How to please your spouse. And that results in having divided interest. Okay. So let's go, up to, let's go back up to this married man. Let's talk about the married man and the married woman and their anxiety over worldly things because of their spouse. I think that the most important thing to say is, if you read verse 33, the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. The most important thing is to say the man is anxious about things of the world. And the problem is not that he's married. The problem is that he's anxious. Now, marriage does not require anxiety. It's not necessarily entailed. Anxiety is sin. Marriage does not require it. However, marriage sure does bring up some opportunities to worry. Can any of you testify to that? It brings up some serious opportunities to worry. Worry about worldly things. Worry about how to please your spouse. So when the married man is anxious and his heart is sinfully ruled by the things of the present age, what is this man? 
He's divided. Why? Because he's married? No, because he's anxious about his marriage. He's a divided man. He's pulled in two directions. And that two-directional pull is the second reason why Paul thinks singleness is a good idea. Not only do we live in a time of distress, but when you're married, it's easy to be divided in your interests because of anxiety. But this anxiety is not what Paul wants for the married person. It's not what Paul wants for the married person. Traditional view says, if you're married, you have to be anxious. I think what Paul is saying here is, if you're married and anxious, stop being anxious. Because it divides you. Divides your interests. You're, you're, playing, you're playing zone defense, you know. You're like, I've got to be worried about the things of the Lord. I've got to be worried about my life. And you, you, you just anxiety is just crushing your life. Not because marriage necessitates it. It's because you're, you're sinning. That's why. So staying single is one way to eliminate the problem of becoming anxious in your marriage. Staying single is Paul's preferred way of avoiding that anxiety. That's what he's wanting to spare them. It's trouble. It's hard work. But there is another way to eliminate the problem of marriage anxiety. It's not Paul's preferred method, but there's another way to resolve marriage anxiety. And he's already told us what it is. The married man does not have to be anxious and divided in his interests. Verse 29, Paul has said, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. If you have a spouse, don't live as though that spouse is your ultimate interest in life. If you do that, you will be anxious. But if you live as though Jesus Christ is your supreme interest in life, it frees you from the anxieties of being an idolater because you've made your spouse number one. So there is a way to be free from anxiety for the married man. Paul already told us, don't live like your spouse is ultimate. Live like Jesus is ultimate. And you'll be free from anxieties. Now Paul says, Paul says, has already told us that's one way. My preferred method, just stay single. You'll avoid it. It's practical. It's a pragmatic reason. So in other words, Paul's second reason for recommending singleness is not because marriage requires divided devotion. That's what the traditional view of this passage says. But instead, because marriage can lend itself to anxiety and therefore divided devotion. Now, I know that's a subtle difference. To say that Paul's not saying marriage requires division, Instead, marriage lends itself to divided interest. That seems like a subtle difference, but I'll I'll tell you what, it makes all the difference in the world for someone who's feeling like they can't get married because it's less spiritual. I think the church has done great damage to the single and to the married 
by misinterpreting this passage as though Paul is saying you cannot be married and undivided in your devotion to Jesus. This subtle change between you must be divided and it lends itself divided is the difference between marriage will divide your interests or marriage has the potential to divide your interests. It's the difference between you cannot remain undistracted in your devotion to Christ if you're married to. It's very hard, which means there's a possibility that you can be married and be undivided in your devotion to Jesus. It's just going to be hard work. Hey, and for some of you, that's all you need to hear. If it's impossible to be undivided, then I guess I can't do it. Restraint. That's a restraint being put on you when you think that way. If it's impossible to to, to get married and be undivided in my devotion to Jesus, I want to be sold out for Jesus, so I guess i got to stay single. Suddenly, you're free from that restraint because now realize it's not that you must be divided. It's that you're just going to have to work hard not to be. And some of you are like, okay, I'll do that. (laughs) I'm willing to work hard. The church has put a noose on singles and it's condemned marriage as a second-rate status. Based on Where do you think the priesthood and the demands for celibacy in the priesthood comes from in the Roman Catholic Church. It's from this passage. You, you, you cannot be married and have undivided devotion. So the priests, even though many of them, perhaps probably even most of them, don't have the gift of celibacy, are forced to remain single because of a misinterpretation of this passage. That's not good. It's not good for a man to be alone. Unless perhaps he has the gift of celibacy. 1 Timothy chapter 4 says that forbidding marriage is the teaching of demons. Go check it out. It's the teaching of demons to forbid marriage. That's why Paul is saying, I am not putting a restraint on you. I'm not putting a noose around your neck. So just have a recommendation. So the mod, the, 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 in this view, the logic then is that both married and singles can have undivided devotion. Both of them have anxiety problems. I want you to be free from the anxiety problems. And then verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord both married and single. And the logic then flows smoothly into the next two paragraphs because in the next two paragraphs, Paul affirms both marriage and singleness and then says, I I have a preference. So here's, here's verse 36. If anyone thinks, this is the next paragraph, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. It is no sin. Corinthians? But whoever is firmly established, and notice all his qualifications here, whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, that is, not being compelled or forced, 
established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. This is the, this is the person who's choosing singleness. Totally willingly. Totally not coerced. So then he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. (laughs) Verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she she wishes only in the Lord. So a widow can remarry as long as it's to a Christian. Christian widow. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think I too have the Spirit of God. So there's Paul's non-coercive, for practical reasons, defense of why he thinks singleness is a better option. Admitting right up front in verse 7, some people have the gift for it, some people don't. So if you marry, you do well. If you don't marry, you do well. Even better, he says. Okay, so... Let me hit a couple of just shepherding issues here, practical issues. And I'm, gonna just, I'm just going to focus on the singles. This will be helpful, I think, for everybody, but I'm going to focus on the singles. And when I say singles, I mean people who aren't married and are in any type of relationship that's a non-marriage relationship, including not having any sort of romantic relationship at the moment. Some people, perhaps even people in our church body, will heed Paul's recommendation. Some of you are going to perhaps make the conscious choice to refrain from romantic relationships. These are, these are what Jesus refers to as people who are eunuchs by choice in Matthew chapter 19. They're, they're, they're choosing this. They want to give themselves to the Lord in undivided devotion, so they choose to avoid the potential anxieties of marriage for the sake of the kingdom. This is just, I'm making the choice. I could if I wanted to, perhaps, but I'm, I'm choosing not to. These are people who are gifted for singleness like Paul was in verse 7, or like Jesus was probably. Gifted with celibacy. And that might be some of you. And one way you'll know is that in your heart, you probably just don't have a strong desire to be married. You have a, you have a strong desire to devote yourself to service to the Lord, and the lack of, of desire for marriage in a family is probably a good indication that you have the gift of celibacy. If you have a very strong desire, that's a red flag for me. If you say, I, I really want to get married, like really want to get married and have a family, but I, I think I have the gift of celibacy. I'd be like, that's like a contradiction. But some of, that, some of you may have that. And if that's you, I want to stand behind Paul's recommenda- recommendation here and encourage you to follow God's calling on your life, if that's you. You should probably process it with people you trust, people you, who, who know well enough to speak into your life. I've heard some people um, say they think they have the gift of singleness, but really they have the gift of bitterness over a bad relationship in the past. And uh, so you want to you process this with other people. Um, 
the best practical advice that I can give you if that's if that's where you're at once once you process that with some people is just to devote yourself to identifying and pursuing whatever it is you're supposed to be focusing on. Because in all likelihood, if God has given you that gift, then there's probably some sort of special calling on your life. You're being spared of the potential difficulties of marriage in order to give yourself to something specific. I would just encourage you, if if you think that that's you, try to track down what that is, that something is, those some things are, so you can devote yourself to those things. Now, some people are willing to take on the troubles of marriage. And they haven't had the right opportunity. Mr. Wright hasn't come along. Mrs. Wright hasn't come along. Or um, maybe they have and uh, you're already in a relationship that's heading that direction. You're willing to go through the distress of living in a perishing world and having to battle through the temptations to be caught up in the things of the world and having to battle through the temptations of not making your spouse an idol and um, worried about how to please your spouse. You're willing to put in the hard work. And, and by the way, it is hard work. There's, there are a lot of marriages that are, that are coasting and full of anxiety. And the merit and, and full of and, and with with a couple, neither neither of which is really fully devoted to the Lord. I mean, it's seriously hard work to be married and undivided in your devotion to Jesus. You're you're just going to have to battle like crazy for it. And all of us and all of us who are married in this room, that's what we're doing. That's what we're, do, we're doing our best to do that. And we need the cross because it, it just it's so hard. But some of you right now are saying, okay, well, I'll try. And, and that's good. Uh, you hear Paul's recommendation. You say, that's probably not me. I'm eager to marry. I want to have sex. I want to have... That, and by the way, that's, that's legit. I'll, I'll, let me just read this to you. Chapter 7, verse 8. Um, to the married and the widows... I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, meaning if you really have strong sexual passion, and a lot of young singles do, and old singles, okay, if it's there, Paul says they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay? So if you think that you've got the gift of celibacy and you're burning up uh, right now, probably safe to assume you don't. So you want to marry, you want to have sex, you want to have a family, you say, "Ah, Paul, thanks, but I just, I need to respectfully decline, I think. Now these are singles who are probably not singles by choice. I'm guessing that's most of you. Um, This is anyone who's dating someone, this is anyone who's interested in someone, this is anyone who's trying to find someone to be interested in. Um, And you may not have the gift that Paul is talking about, even though you're single right now. You may not have the gift of celibacy, even though you're single. So, how do you respectfully, thoughtfully, humbly decline Paul's advice and pursue healthy relationships with the hopes of possibly marrying someday? That's the question I want to ask. My guess is that's where most singles are 
And I think I have three, three bits of just some practical advice. That's where you are. Number one, temper your desire with contentment. Temper your desire for marriage with contentment. But loose-handed loose hope in the Lord. You want to cultivate this. Wherever you are, you want to cultivate the ability to say, if I never marry, I will be okay. It'll be hard, but I'll be okay. Because there's no guarantee, there's no guarantee that you will. And while you're in this place, even though you still desire it, right now the best thing you can do for your heart is cultivate contentment. Not despair, not hopelessness, just, Lord, you know what's best. I trust my life to you. If I never marry, I'll be okay. The comfort for you is this, at least for the time being, you can enjoy the practical benefits of singleness. All the things that Paul lays out here for the person who's called to celibacy, they're really all things that you can be experiencing whether or not you're called to celibacy, whether or not you're called to lifetime singleness, the, the, the being spared certain types of trouble, uh, singleness being for your benef- benefit. It does help for the time being to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now that may change, but for right now, you cultivate that. Cultivate that content heart. Number two, remember that Paul's advice is not a restraint. Your desires are not sinful per se. Desire for marriage is not a sinful desire. It's, it's, it's not um, carnal, selfish, ungodly. Uh, Paul's not intending to give you anxiety about singleness if you'd prefer not to remain single. Hey, it's okay to decline Paul's advice. It's just advice from a trustworthy guy, but it's just advice. It's okay to decline. You can want to be married, and it is no sin. And number three, walk in wisdom in your relationships with people of the opposite sex. Walk in wisdom in those relationships. As you interact with and build relationships with other women or men, do it right. Do it wisely. Do it thoughtfully. Do it intentionally. Now, I have some opinions about these kinds of things, uh, dating, courtship. I'm not going to give those from the pulpit. Um, what I will talk about is um, just some fundamentals. Fundamentals of what it looks like to interact wisely. If you're a person who hopes to marry someday, you want to cultivate healthy relationships with people of the opposite sex, what might that look like? And here's how I'm going to do this. Um, oh, actually, let me get to that in a second. So, so here's, here's what I'll say to start with. One, cultivate... And look for godliness. Cultivate godliness. Look for godliness. Cultivate God. Be the kind of person that a godly person would want to marry. Cultivate godliness in your life. Cultivate a love for Jesus. Cultivate a love for the gospel. Cultivate a love for the Bible. Cultivate a prayer life. Cultivate, cultivate contentment in the Lord. This is, this is the time to train yourself to have undivided devotion 
to the Lord, so that whether you stay single the rest of your life, you are undivided in your devotion to the Lord, or whether you marry someday, you have trained yourself to know how to be all about Jesus, so that when those trying circumstances come upon you in your marriage someday, you have learned how to be a single-minded person focused on the Lord Jesus that's going to help you avoid those anxieties. So cultivate godliness and look for godliness. Look for godliness in other people. Um, look for, if you're thinking about, is this the right person for me? Look, do they love Jesus? Do they love the gospel? Do they read their Bible? Do they have a prayer life? Are they content in the Lord? Or is this like a codependent relationship getting ready to, to happen? What, look for godliness. So cultivate it and look for it. Fundamental number two, cultivate and look for godly masculinity or femininity. So if you're a man, cultivate godly masculinity, look for godly femininity. If you're a woman, cultivate godly femininity, look for godly masculinity. This is just, these are just some fundamental things that are going to be super helpful. And here's how, here's how I'm going to do this. I'm going to talk to the sisters about what to look for in a brother. And brothers, you should be listening. And then I'm going to talk to the brothers and tell you what you should be looking for in a godly sister. And sisters, you should be listening in. That way, that's just, going to, that's just efficient to do it that way. Okay. So sisters... Look for a man who, number one, has a passion for Christ to know him and to make him known. Don't go after a spiritual dud. I'm serious. Don't, don't think that you're going to convert this unbeliever into being some great godly husband for you. Don't do that. It's, it's, a, it's, it's foolish. The, 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 the brother should have a passion for Jesus. He loves Jesus. He likes to talk about Jesus. He likes to initiate conversations about Jesus. He likes to share his faith. He's serious about Christ. He's serious about the kingdom. Number two, look for a brother who is willing and able to disciple you, which consists, I'm going to say, of two things here. Uh, One, conviction, and two, initiative. A brother who has conviction. He's not a people pleaser. He's willing to do the right thing when there's pressure to do otherwise. In fact, he's even willing to cross you if he, if he has to. Not, not because, he's, not because he's, he's controlling or a jerk, but because he has to do the right thing. You don't want a husband who's not going to attempt to lead you when he believes that you're going down a path of self-destruction. You don't want that guy. You want a guy who's going to stand up for what's right. You'll never respect a man who doesn't have conviction. You'll never respect a man who won't cross you, ladies. He's a man who's got a vision for what a godly home should look like. He's got conviction. And he takes initiative. When things need to be, be done, he, he, he does them. He's not, this is huge for you ladies, please. He's not the kind of man who's going to leave you in the dark about where this relationship is. 
If you're in a relationship and you're just, as, as a lady, and you're just wondering, what are we? Like, you, you want to hang out with me, we have fun together, you're flirty with me, I want to give your, my heart to you, but I don't, I don't know if I can. You don't want that guy. He's not ready. He either doesn't know what he wants, in which case just back off and just say, hey, when you know what you want, just talk to me. Until then, I need to guard my heart. So either he's not ready or he's not grown up enough to just have a good conversation with you and say, these are my intentions. So if he's not clear about that, get some space. Your heart is going to be a mess. You know this. Your heart is going to be a mess until you figure out what this guy is really thinking. Well, he should not leave you in limbo. My rule, first date. Okay, I should not be doing this from the pulpit. Um, if he's not telling you what's going on, then you, you, should, you should let him know that when he's ready, you have, you're willing to talk with him again. So you want a man who's got conviction. You want a man who's going to take initiative. He's going to pursue you when you need to be pursued, even if you don't want to be pursued. He doesn't retreat into passive, spineless, Silence, busying himself. You know, is this the guy who's going to get busy in the garage on projects and sit in front of the TV when conflict happens because he just he he just crumbles? You don't want that guy. He battles for the marriage. In other words, he has the signs that he's going to be a godly leader in your marriage. That's what you're looking for. And number three. He's willing to serve you with loving sacrifice. A godly husband lays down his life for the good of his woman. And he has a tendency to want to care for other women as well. He he feels a responsibility to treat women well. How does he talk to his mom? How does he talk to his sisters? How does he talk to the other sisters at church? He isn't a people pleaser in his desire to serve. It's the type of service that costs him something because he cares about you. He cares for your welfare. And like Jesus, he's in the business of taking good care of you. I I know that this goes against the grain of what some of you have been taught, the type of woman that you're supposed to be, the independent woman. The strong woman who doesn't need to be cared for. Hey, that does not come from the Bible. You want a brother who is going to take good care of you. He's going to respect you. He's going to serve you. He's going to lay down his life for you. If he opens the door for you, it's not a commentary on your weakness. He wants to serve you. That's the kind of brother that you want. In other words... He has the signs that he will not only be a leader in the marriage, but he will execute that leadership with Christ-like love. That's what, a, that's what a husband is called to. Does the guy have the good signs that he's going to be a good husband? Does he love Jesus? Is he a good leader? And does he lay his life down in service? That's a man. Brothers, be a man. 
And brothers, look for a woman who has a passion for Jesus. Passion to know Him, a passion to make Him known. Don't go after a woman who has great legs and a vain heart. It's not really interested in the things of Jesus. Don't try to convert that unbelieving woman into being your great godly wife. It happens sometimes. But just don't... Look for a godly woman. Pray for a godly woman who loves Christ. The first thing I noticed about my wife when we had a good conversation together was, this woman has been with Jesus. She likes to talk about him. She likes her Bible. She prays. She talks about these things. She knows Christ. Man, she's hot. Sorry. (laughs) Um, Number two, look for a woman who makes you stronger. Does she help you maintain God's calling on your life? Ladies, just listen in. Brothers, does she help you maintain God's calling on your life or does she tend to divert you from God's calling on your life? Does she supplement your weaknesses and support you or does she exploit somehow, exploit your weaknesses, criticizing them, exploiting them, and then take advantage of you? In other words, does she have the signs that she will embrace her calling to be your helper? in marriage, which is what she'll be called to be. And number three, not only should she be a woman who loves Jesus, not only should she be a woman who makes you stronger, number three, is she willing to be discipled by you? If she rejects every effort that you make to lead her in godliness, every effort you make to pray together, to get into the Word together, if she rolls her eyes at your convictions or is regularly critical of your vision, or if there's a sense of competition and friction over over who takes the lead, you don't want to marry that woman. That's going to be a painful, painful marriage. I used to, uh, I, had a, I had a girlfriend one time, and before I started dating her, my these Christian brothers, they said, careful man, she knows what she wants. And what they meant was, she does not want to be led, she wants to lead. She has a total vision for what her life is supposed to be, and you better fit into it. Okay, that's not healthy for a marriage. In other words, brothers, look for a woman who has the signs that she will not only embrace her calling to be your helper in the marriage, but she will also respect your leadership in the marriage. And all I've done for you is taken what Paul says a husband's responsibility is and a wife's responsibility is in a marriage, and I've just kind of backed it up a little bit to the premarital stage and said, hey, there are things you can cultivate in your life right now that will flower in a marriage. You can be working on that right now. And these things are at the heart of masculinity and femininity. Now, everybody here is suddenly going to be looking for this superhero man or woman. And um, I hope that what I've done is maybe helped you not settle for something that's going to be dangerous for you. 
and, and unnecessarily painful. But the reality is, hey, everybody's in process. Are there signs in this guy's life, are there signs in this gal's life that they're moving on this trajectory? Hopefully after this sermon, yes. And hopefully before this sermon, yes also. But are there signs that they're moving in the direction, in these directions? That's what you're looking for. Okay, well, I knew that I couldn't do the message on singleness and end with Paul's preference and not speak to the singles who feel like that's not, I don't know that that's me. I don't know that I'm called to be to the gift of singleness. So I had to address those issues. I hope that that gives you some, some things to think about and to pray about. And let's do this. I'm just going to close in, in, in prayer right now, but let me just ask everybody to close, close their eyes, bow their heads, invite the worship team up. I wanted to ask you to respond to the Lord. There are as, as, many, as, as many ways in which God could be speaking to you through this as there are people in this room. So whatever it is that's on your mind right now, I'm just going to ask if maybe Ben, if you'll just play some piano and, and we'll take maybe one or two minutes. We'll have kind of one of those long, awkward silences right now. Um, and you just think about these things, process these things, address the Lord, let him address you. And um, John, if, if you guys will just close this in a song, maybe one or two minutes. There is one great satisfying treasure in the, in the universe, and it's not, me- it's not marriage. And it's not singleness. It's Jesus Christ. Word of God says... You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. No matter where you are, no matter what you're wrestling with, no matter how you're processing this, I guarantee you this right now. Christ wants to make your heart content in Him alone. And once that happens, as you trust in His grace for you, that He has purchased for you at the cross, so that right now you can be in that satisfying relationship with Him. When you're in that place, the heart can be still. And the heart can be filled. And a lot of times that's where clarity comes too. So may the God who made light shine out of darkness shine into your hearts different kind of light. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that when you look at Christ and what He has done, you see glory. And when you see glory, your heart rejoices married or single you're on a mission to have him undistracted undivided and that's all you need and God's people said amen you're dismissed